0: Welcome to This Is Influence. It's a show about how B2B brands and execs can become more influential. My guest this week is Andrew Grill, the actionable futurist. He gives really practical advice to help any audience harness digital technologies. And he's one of those guys that constantly shows up on the lists of the most influential B2B professionals in the world in digital tech. He's got a new book out coming later this year in 2023 called Digitally Curious, which I'm really excited to read. He has become one of those trusted voices with organizations who want to navigate the digital age. He's a highly sought-after keynote speaker on topics like Web3, the metaverse, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, generative AI, just go down the list. He also ran Cred and Influencer Marketing Platform before becoming an influencer himself. So we have a fascinating conversation about his perspective on why brands should work with influencers, how to get the best out of that relationship, what content needs to be created. And we also talk about, should we be worried about generative AI and how to actually work with the technology to make us more employable? This is an episode not to be missed. So this is old, this is new, this is influence. Andrew Grill, welcome to This Is Influence.
1: Nathan, great to be on the show.
0: Super excited to have you on the show, Andrew. Um, We're going to talk today about a couple of things. Generative AI, it's not a topic that people have really been uh, talking about very much or familiar with. Uh, We're also going to talk about influencer marketing because you ran Cred, an influencer platform yourself, uh, and you've also become an influencer since. So I'm super fascinated to talk about all those things. But I thought an interesting place to start would be for you to tell us What are the six questions that you ask people when you do keynote presentations and talks? I'd be super fascinated for you to kind of outline what those six questions are and what you learn from the responses that you get to those six questions.
1: Yeah, let me set that up. So normally I'm the opening keynote. So someone introduces me, I play some walk-on music, I get on stage. I then get the whole audience to stand up. And this can be quite uncomfortable because people are going, well, why are we doing this? It does two things. First of all, the blood rushes to the head. So they're thinking clearly. They have to put down their laptop or their phone. But also they go, oh, this is a bit different. So I then literally say, are you digitally curious? Question mark. And then they go, well, how are we going to work this out? So I say, okay, we're going to do this old school stand-up. I want to ask you six simple questions. And the way it works is you stay standing if you're doing what I say, and if you're not doing it, you can sit down, but you can redeem yourself later. So the six things I ask are, have you Googled yourself lately? Do you consume all your newspapers and magazines digitally? Have you played with ChatGPT or made an AI profile picture? Uh, do you use an app-only bank like a Monzo or Revolut? Do you use two-factor authentication on all of your networks? And have you bought some Bitcoin? Now what that does, especially if it's in a room of people, the last question is always the interesting one. There are always three or four people that have bought Bitcoin. They look around the room they go oh nathan james julie i didn't know you would bought bitcoin and it sometimes can take 30 seconds to settle the room down because they're all talking about this but why i do it is that first question are you digitally curious and they can see that those six things are easy to do i mean it's very easy to google yourself it's quite easy to, to use chat gpt and by the end of the presentation by the end of the podcast i want them to be drawn to be doing those things because if you are ChatGPT is a good example what I encourage my clients to do is just to play with it. Open up an account which is free, go to the prompt, and the first thing you type is, who are my competitors with your company name there? What then happens is they're drawn into it. It's like, my goodness, this is more than I expected. I've actually done it myself. I've remained curious. I'm going to try and do more things. And so I think that whole exercise, whether it's done virtually, in the room or whatever, allows people to see that there are six things they can do They're simple to do. And it brings them closer to wanting to know more and being hungry for more information.
0: And of course, you've got a a book by the same title, Digitally Curious, which is out later on this year, which I'm super fascinated to, to read, just outline what the premise is of the book. And I assume that it aligns to those those six questions in in many ways. What are you hoping that readers get from the book?
1: Well, I suppose the question is, who would buy the book? And whenever I'm at an event, I look around the room and I say to people when I'm talking about the book, I hope everyone in this room would feel like they could get some useful information from it. Because people are saying, well, should I be using ChatGPT? We're going to talk about generative AI. What is it? So what I want to do is give people the ability to not feel silly about asking those technical questions, to have an overview of what it is and what I'm going to be using from my podcast interview, some nearly 100 interviews of people like yourself, like Susie Allegre, is take some of their key learnings, wrap it around my thinking, and then every chapter will end with, here are the five things, here are the five actionable things that you can do today to get closer to understanding this bit of technology. So it'll cover generative AI. It'll cover all the sort of buzzwords we hear today. And I'm hoping that someone would see the cover and go digitally curious, I'm curious, what is that? And as they leaf through the table of contents, like, "Oh, this is really accessible. I need to know about these things for my business. I don't necessarily want to ask my peers, but this is going to prime me into a position of knowing more about this. But importantly, from that front cover, that front question, I want to be more curious. What can I do today, tomorrow, next week to find out more and become more involved in this technology discussion?
0: That word "curious," I think, is a, a super fascinating one. I, I read a book a few months ago from um, a Hollywood producer. He's, uh, you know, he's won several Oscars. I'm, I'm blanking on his on his name now, but he's he produced um, uh, a number of fantastic films. And he talked about the art of being curious. And and essentially, he basically says that it's the last human ability that really can't be replicated by technology. And it it really allows us to become, to be human in many ways. That idea of, of, you know, following your curiosity and what paths open up off the back of being curious. I'm just interested to know... Kind of what you feel are the benefits of curiosity why should people be curious especially as far as uh sort of transformative technologies like ai bitcoin nfts are concerned it almost feels as though this technology is speeding up and, and ramping up and there's a emphasis on all of us a priority that we all have to kind of get our heads around these technologies so, so we can understand how it's going to impact our lives
1: it's a really good question. I think one of the, as you say, the last things that humans will be known for is that we're curious. We want to know more. Uh, that You have different levels of curiosity. I'm very curious about technology. That's why I play with it. And the challenge is, will my infectious energy um, encourage someone else to investigate the technology like I do? We're going to talk about generative AI. We're going to talk about chat GPT. And so I've done a lot of work to understand how it works. And I've managed to drill it down to a sentence and i've tested this sentence on ai experts and they've not said that i'm wrong chat gpt is able to predict the next word in a sentence let me say it again all the chat gpt all that chat gpt does is predict the next word in a sentence now how it does that is quite complicated and it does it at scale and it's read millions of books and billions of words it knows about english sentence structure it knows what word should be there and in fact there's even a level where i could put the word Or I could put the word they, but I won't do that because otherwise it'll be the same. So if AI, if artificial intelligence is supposed to be really, really smart and all it's doing is predicting the next word in a sentence, where does the curiosity come from? It comes from humans saying, okay, that's interesting information, but I want to know more. I'm going to go and consult a book. I'm going to go and ask an expert. I'm going to listen to a podcast. I want to know more. And so I think civilization will continue. And we'll get to Mars and we'll develop the next version of ChatGPT, if we remain curious. I know you've had Susie Allegri on the podcast. I actually saw her yesterday in Richmond. I turned around a podcast overnight to update our podcast from last year about ChatGPT and Generative AI. And one thing she said that was very interesting, and I think she attributed this to Tim Cook, he said that if back in the 70s and 80s, All the developers that develop these amazing tools like the internet and TCPIP, if they'd been distracted by TikTok and Instagram and Twitter, nothing would have been developed. There wouldn't have been any curiosity. We would have been stuck in this whirlpool of content that we don't actually need. So we need time to think. We need freedom to think. And part of that is remaining curious. And so the book my opening this podcast today. I want people to go, hmm, I need to know more. I need to know more to be a better husband, father, daughter, mother, uh, employee, friend, colleague. I wanna know more. I wanna teach people what they should know about these things.
0: Whenever I speak to people about AI, there are two schools of thought really. <laughs> One is the robots are here, they're gonna take over the world, they're gonna kill us, Doomsday is n- naysayers. And then there are people that are supremely optimistic about the future and actually say that it's going to give us tools and free us up to do more creative work and be more curious and free us up from the drudgery of mundane day-to-day tasks. And actually it's going to, you know, make us exponentially more productive and creative. And actually it's it's a great thing. And... If you look at any disruptive technology, even down to the printing press, right? When the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press came in, there were, you know, there were the monks that said, this is the worst technology ever. This is terrible. It's gonna stop people from listening to me and and all the rest of it. And then you had people that actually loved, loved it and, you know, fast forward a couple of hundred years and, and this is where we are. Where do you sit?
1: Well, I'm an optimist and I'm a futurist. Um, But I think we need to give it some guardrails because sometimes AI will tell us things that aren't right. And so if we remain curious, we will then push the technology. I would love AI to remove some of the minute of my life. The things I don't like doing, paying taxes and doing things um, to renew my insurance and filling out forms and those sort of things. I would like it to be able to do that given the information it knows about me. But making critical decisions and showing empathy and being a caring person, those sort of things, you you can't outsource that to AI. And I think you're right that with every new invention, people have been scared. I mean, look at word processing. Years ago, you had a typewriter on your desk. Now you have a laptop probably. This podcast will be edited in some way with a tool. We're actually using a tool today to do that. And in the background, it's removing noise. It's doing all the sort of things that someone would have had to do Old school years ago, and I've been making documentaries for years. And years ago, I used physical film, and to edit that, I literally had to splice one bit of film onto another bit of film and glue it together and hope that the people watching wouldn't see the join there. These days, I use Adobe Premiere and it does it almost for me. So I'm happy that there are tools there. I'm happy though that I have a level of control and I can decide which shot on my video goes in and which doesn't go in. So the challenge is, if we let AI do everything for us, where's our creativity? Where's our curiosity? And how can we basically say that's not right? We might come on to this, and, and Susie and I debate often about this about the whole notion of, you know, where are the laws that stop discrimination? Where are the laws that stop people actually spreading misinformation? I think there's a lot of that out there. The challenge is, will we see that it's AI-generated or human-generated? Or will there be laws to say this bit of content has to be labeled as AI-generated?
0: Super fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about influencer marketing and as it relates to your expertise and knowledge in technology. Um, I know that you ran Cred for a number of years, uh, an influencer marketing platform. You're an influencer yourself with a, a large audience. You're a keynote speaker, a TEDx speaker, highly sought after influencer. What makes a good B2B influencer in your opinion?
1: Well, first of all, they don't call themselves influencers. I'm very flattered that you call me an influencer. I do not and I never would call myself an influencer. Influence is earned. And just back to Cred, Cred competed with Clout. A lot of people remember Clout, clout clout.com. It gave you a score out of 100 Clout did in terms of your influence online. And what we did is we had a score out of 1000. We did it slightly differently. Just as an aside, this is a funny story. So, Cred's headquarters were at 474 Bryant Street in San Francisco, south of Market Area. We we're in the same physical building as Clout. We we're on an old shoe warehouse. They're on one side of the building with a big division down the side, and actually the entrance was the other street. We we're on the other side. So, we changed our Wi-Fi code to Cred's the best. So, whenever they came into the office, they had a choice of Wi-Fi networks. One of them was Cred the best, just to annoy them. <laughs> bit of um, bit of uh, healthy competition. Smart. But what was interesting back then, and this is back in 2011, so I was around the birth of some of this influencer marketing and influencer measurement when brands started to get interesting to say, give us someone who's really influential. We want them to hold the latest product or try the latest product. And that's continuing today with Instagram influencers, and I, I could do a whole podcast on how that is not very transparent. And people are noisy but not necessarily influential. Let me give you an example. If you're truly influential, If I say buy the product, you will. So rather than getting, let's just make up some numbers, rather than getting $10,000 to promote a product, I'll give you $1,000 now, but you can have any of the upside. And there's a unique link. And if someone really does click your link and buy the product because of what you've said, you share on the upside. And That's a cost of sales. But no influencer would do that because, no, 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 you're going to pay me ten grand because you're using my brand, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that's B2C. B2B, it's a little bit different. And I am a bit more of a purist. So I use a lot of technology. I'll shout out to one company. I'm not paid to say this. I use Ubiquiti Unify Wi-Fi systems. They're amazing. They have a great community. I love tinkering with it. Their products are just fantastic. Now, I'm not in any influencer program. I'm saying that without being paid to do that. If they approach me, I'd say, well, of course, I would be happy to help promote the product because I use it and I endorse it, and if I tell my friends, which I do, to use this product and spend money buying it, my brand is at risk. If I was a less ethical influencer, I would take the money, and regardless of whether the product worked or not, I'd say, just buy it. So I think the challenge is in B2B, when you've got big brands who are saying, we want an influencer, it's not the same approach as B2C, where you want eyeballs, you want awareness. I think it almost comes down to advocacy. So back to the Unify example, who are our advocates? Who are talking about the product without us even asking them to? They love the product. They're telling their friends. How do we ride that wave? Because we've got some fans out there. And what I suggest to all my clients is grab them with both hands. Put them under NDA or whatever. Put them in a beta program so that they can see the latest stuff that's coming. And they can actually help develop the product. Years ago in Australia, I was working for a telecommunications company called Optus and we were developing new products and services. We would do large market research programs. they take six to eight weeks and by the time we got the survey back, the market had moved on. So can you use these influencers for a bit of market research, a bit of product development and also to promote that? I'm not sure if I answered your question, but I really have a lot of experience in how to do influence well. I can sniff out an unauthentic or inauthentic influencer a mile off. But it's generally people who call themselves influencers. Influence is earned.
0: On the B2C side, it's quite clear that you want to drive some kind of transaction um, pretty quickly, right? If you were using an Instagram influencer or TikTok influencer, you want to drive the awareness of the influencer's audience to get people to buy more stuff. On the B2B side the sales cycles are a lot more are a lot longer there are multiple stakeholders multiple decision makers it's a much more complex decision especially if you're if you're selling quite a, a high value product so so in my mind on the on the b2b side yes you can make the link to sales but really what you want to be doing first and foremost is establishing credibility you want to work with influencers that have you know an audience that maybe you can't access if you're a brand and you want to use their credibility and their audience to help you build some awareness, generate some fame, build some, build some credibility, so that you can kind of monetize that audience a little bit later on down the funnel. First of all, do you agree with that as a, as a, as a premise? And how have you found the best B2B influencers working with brands in order to drive business performance?
1: Yeah, a lot of questions in there. So, yes, you need some sort of link back to uh, attribution, and that can be harder with longer sales cycles. Let me give you an example that was actually something I did when I was at IBM. So I was a partner at IBM, so I was a senior executive. I was new. I'd come from a bunch of startups, and most of my peers that were also partners had been there quite a long time. And what I found was that I was being put into meetings where they wanted to basically unstick relationships. So, large big bank, for example, spending hundreds of millions of dollars with IBM, the, the partner that owned the account would say, We want to sell them some more things. Can you help us influence them to buy more IBM things or put us in, in an RFP consideration set? So, I go along to the meeting, I do my research, I'd be in a boardroom with very senior people. They'd all have their arms folded, almost saying, We're only here because you're IBM. We spend a lot of money with you. Apparently, you've got something new. What I was able to do in 45 minutes is basically move from the arms being folded to the notepads being taken out. When are we doing an RFP? We're now going to put you in the consideration set. So in a way, I had influenced their decision by being in that room and told them about the other things that IBM was doing. And I became an internal and a cross-company influencer inside IBM and because I was also doing a lot of public speaking, I was getting IBM onto stages they would never get onto because, yes, I work for IBM, but also I had a message to say and I was seen as a thought leader in various spaces and so I was invited into those rooms. Now, the challenge there, it's a fine line. You either have the first five slides all about your company and aren't I amazing, or you give them some real value. I would then do come off stage, wipe my brow, and I'd be you know checking my phone at the end of a talk. And I'd have this line of people wanting to swap business cards. What you said was really interesting. I didn't know IBM did that. Can we set up a meeting? Uh, I remember, I'll tell you another story. So it was a cross-government department. There were 30 different government, UK government agencies represented. It was a big deal. The client partner had arranged this for months. It was unusual to get 30 people in front of a vendor, just one vendor. And so we want to talk about the new things that we were doing. And I said, can I do something a bit different? I'm a new partner. I've been here a year. I want to try something different. I went, yeah, okay, what is he going to do? Those of your listeners out there that remember the Mad Men series will remember Don Draper. He was the uh, client lead. He was a creative director. And he would use easels to pitch a product. And he would put things on an easel with the creative copy, which a lot of companies do. I said, can I tell the story of IBM and collaborative consulting using four easels and A3 or A2 paper? And they went, yeah, just so crazy it might work. So on the day, we had five rehearsals where we do all this. basically The, the easels will be laid around the room with the cardboard turned around the other way. And I then told the story of IBM. And the last one was, this is the story of IBM. You could have heard a pin drop. Now, for six months after that, all they were talking about was the guy from IBM with the easels. That cut through because it was just so different. And uh, that's an example of theatrics. It's also an example of influence because it then led to a bunch of engagements. I think a probably 8 or $10 million consulting deal came out of that because of what we did. So long-winded answer to your question, the traditional B2B influence is someone who's on a list, on a litaker or something, they come across that, okay, he or she sounds great. We'll get them. We'll talk to them. First thing you should do is meet them for a cup of coffee would you want this person to represent your brand? Do they have something about them or a belief that doesn't actually align with your beliefs as well? Two things will happen. It then goes from a transactional relationship where I'm paying you X amount of dollars or pounds to represent the brand to, or oh, you've just had a really good idea, or you should meet so-and-so. So I think B2B, you can have deeper relationships. and. B2B influencers want to be involved and engaged. If you're an influencer, you've probably been in industry, you've been in academia, you've done all this before, and now you've got more of a portfolio career like me, and you actually enjoy learning about new products and services. You've got the time to invest in and look at that more deeply. So not sure if I answered your question, but B2B is very different. And if it's done very well, it can be incredibly powerful.
0: And my final question, Andrew, we're at a nice restaurant of your choosing, pick one. Bepi's in Sydney. Excellent. Okay, so we're at Beppi's. If you could bring just three people dead or alive to dinner with you, these people have the ability to make you smarter, better, increase your performance in some way, shape or form. Which three people do you bring and why?
1: I'd bring Steve Jobs. I'd bring him back because I think he has a lot to say and I think we can learn a lot from him. And I probably want to challenge some of his thinking. I would actually ask Elon Musk, not because I agree with everything he says, but I would actually like to be in a room with him and hear some of his knowledge as well. And that third person, Winston Churchill, how did you use your influence and strategy and speaking skills to win a war?
0: Fantastic, that sounds like a a great dinner. Andrew Grill, thank you so much for doing this.
1: Nathan, thanks so much, I had a ball.
0: This is Influences, a production of Bridge Growth, the B2B influencer agency for technology brands I could not produce this show without our crack staff here at Bridge. Tyler Barab is our booker. Christoph Boaschek is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Alibaba. You've been listening to This Is Influence.